Blog Talk Radio. October 2nd, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff. And um, if you've listened to the president, you know that right now we're actually supposed to be having a moment of silence for the victims of the horrible atrocity in Las Vegas. You know, you should know, first of all, that I scheduled this show. I planned this show last night before I'd even heard about it. And, you know, my show's always at noon. I'd only heard a few minutes ago that I was supposed to be doing a moment of silence right now. So just know that all of my thoughts and best wishes are with everybody who was affected by that horrible atrocity. And if I thought it would actually help or do any good, I would, you know, think if I could drive out to Vegas or something and donate some blood. But um, I think that they've got that handled. I saw that the, the lines to donate blood in Vegas started, um, you know, started last night. And I was actually tearing up when I was seeing some of that. The other thing that I, uh, that I saw was someone was saying maybe this guy was drunk. I don't know if he was just drunk or not. There's a picture in uh, the Sun UK of one of the guys who was at the concert in Vegas last night who, you know, in the midst of all of this, you know, horrific rain of bullets coming down around him stands up and flips off the bastard, you know, who's up in the, you know, safe security of his hotel room shooting all these bullets down on everybody. So, um, and again, all best, best wishes. I had thought of maybe, you know, canceling the show again, I had planned it before I'd heard anything about what was going on in Vegas, but I decided that the best thing that I could do is just continue to do some work that I believe, you know, where I can uniquely provide a value. If I do a show on Vegas and I talk to you about what a horrible bastard this is and how we shouldn't have gun control, because I don't believe in gun control, gun control is not the solution to something like this, you know, talk, try to talk about that. I'm not going to say anything unique where I have, a unique value to provide you guys is in this very important case that's coming up in the Supreme Court. So that's what I want to focus on here today. Um, You know, the only other thing that's been going on this week is the whole issue of do you take a knee, you know, when the anthem is playing at at a sporting event? And if you guys follow me on social media, you know that I've said because of Trump's tweeting and his imperative tone about it, some people are saying imperious tone. That's what Robert said. Uh, 
I was tempted. If I was there, I'd be tempted to take a knee only because of Trump. I would never, I mean, never, first time in my life I'd ever do that. And uh, it's horrible that he brings us to us. Now, Trump is being better today. Some of the things that he's been saying about this atrocity in Vegas have been quite good, you know, in particular that love is the thing that animates us, not anger. You could say love, not fear as well. Robert in the chat room says, never let the bastards slow you down. No silence required. I would do the moment of silence, say, if my show had started before noon, and then I, I would do it. I would do it, you know, just out of respect for all of the victims and stuff. Um, I, I was horrified to wake up and see in my Twitter feed, stupid Richard Dawkins, his tweet that's out there. You guys can go look at it for yourself. If I put together some program notes, I would include stuff like that, but I have not put together any program notes. All I've been doing this morning, besides just, you know, trying to stomach the news from Vegas is think about an op-ed, you know, an 800 word length piece that I can write on Carpenter versus United States. Those of you who've been following me for a long time, you know that my recommendation for what should happen in this case is essentially my life's work. This is my life, my academic work in any event. Um, my whole academic career has led up to being able to provide what I think is a unique argument for what should happen in this case. And the challenge, as I see it, is explaining exactly what should happen, making it understandable and compelling for people who don't share this context of having thought about this in a certain way for so many years. Because again, if you follow me, you know that I started this journey with privacy way back when I was um, working for Leonard Peikoff on his radio show. And he, I was a research assistant and he said, Hey, Amy, you know, you're in law school, go out there and figure out whether there is a right to privacy or not. Is there really a right to privacy? And that's where I started, you know, because before there was a distinct right to privacy, all these privacy cases used to be handled under property and contract. And it was Warren and Brandeis, Justice Brandeis and his old law partner, Samuel Warren, who first put forth this argument that there should be this distinct right to privacy, that property and contract were inadequate to cover it. And so that was really my first task, and that was what ended up being my dissertation, is talking about whether or not there should be a distinct right to privacy. I argue that there there shouldn't, that in fact the creation of a distinct right to privacy has undermined the proper foundation for privacy, that we should go back to a realm of property and contract. So this is the way I've been thinking about privacy for so long in terms of protecting privacy via our rights to property and contract. And this just isn't done anymore. It's, I mean, everybody right now, you just assume you've got a right to privacy and that it's protected, you know, under the Fourth Amendment. And it's whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. This is all taken for granted. Do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? And if you do, then they protect it. And if you don't, then they don't. And, uh, you know, you, you never know exactly what privacy is being covered. You're kind of at the mercy of either a court saying that you're expectation is reasonable or legislators legislating something to protect you that might last for a year and then be repealed. That's the realm that everybody is thinking about when they, you know, think about this case, this Carpenter case. So 
again, because I have this context of thinking about it for so long, what I'm going to attempt to do for you today is lay out this entire case. I have a title of this show. The title of this show is Carpenter versus United States, the Supreme Court's Opportunity to Legalize Privacy. I think on Blog Talk, I just say the court's opportunity to legalize privacy. I make it shorter. But as lawyers, we often just call it the court with a capital C, and everybody knows that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Supreme Court. So I'm going to run you through the steps of my argument. And in a way, you guys who are listening here, thank you for those who are joining live at, at Blog Talk. I haven't done a whole bunch to promote the show today. Those of you who are listening, particularly if you have not been listening to me talk about this subject or make this type of argument for a long time, uh, some people have been listening to you know for a long time that you almost share my context. But if you don't share my context, I want you just to listen to my argument and see if it makes sense. And feel free either to call in. And tell me if there's something that's unclear. The number to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. So call in and you tell me something's unclear because then I know that I need to make sure to elaborate a bit if I want the intelligent layperson who's going to be reading this op-ed, hopefully I'm going to submit it, try to get it published. I, I want people to understand what I'm saying. I want to give this argument the best chance possible to be heard. And I'm hoping to, you know, present it in other places as well. I would love to go back on Tucker, for example, if they would have me. And that that would be wonderful too. But what I need to do in order to do that is make the whole thing comprehensible. So let me get started. I'm just going to dive in and then you know, take whatever questions you guys have and see whether I need to flesh out the argument. I have a tentative outline that I would like to use for writing this op-ed, and I think I've got the main points covered. But as I said, there's a number of us, you know, who are scholars who've been, and I, I don't, again, I don't call myself a scholar, I call myself a thinker, but I have been thinking about this issue in a certain way for so long that it's second nature to me, but it's, as I said, I acknowledge it's totally foreign to everybody else. So I'm going to try to make this comprehensible to you. You may not share exactly my context by the time we're done, but I think that I can get the argument across and make it fairly compelling to you. That is my goal. So you guys have to let me know and just be honest, you know, don't worry about hurting my feelings and stuff. If you guys, I'm asking you guys in effect to be editors and you know, if someone's editing you, you just, you know, you can't take it personally. I used to give my writings, um, you know, to Leonard Peikoff. I was just an abysmal writer. I was a math major undergrad, and then I go to law school. And I give him a, you know, document. He just slashes it in red ink everywhere. I am acutely aware that my context may not be transferred objectively. So don't worry about hurting my feelings. You tell me when something is unclear and then let me decide, did I make something clear? Did I not? Is there something more I can do to make my point clear? Because that's what I really would like to do today. So with that preamble, let me zoom in, first of all. So again, what am I saying? I'm saying that this case, Carpenter versus United States, is the court's opportunity to legalize privacy. And so what do I want to start out by saying? I want to say that privacy today is effectively illegal. Why do I say that privacy today is effectively illegal? Two reasons. First of all, 
do a thought experiment. Think about your typical day, a day in your life as you go about all of your business and errands and everything else. Think about how much information you share with third parties, whether it be internet service providers, social media, other sorts of online services, when you're shopping and you stick your chip card in the little thing and the you know target is recording all of your shopping habits in addition to your credit card company always knowing that information too uh, when you go to doctors when you go to the bank you're making phone calls on your cell phone all the different things that you're doing you're swiping your little parking card when you go either in and out of work or into a parking lot you know a private privately owned parking lot you're sharing information with third parties other people all the time as you're going about your day. And why do we do that? Because it makes our lives better. It makes our lives easier. It improves our lives. It makes them richer. Particularly a lot of our online, you know, online life, we get to connect with people who share similar values all around the world. So our lives are made easier, richer, more convenient by this sharing. And technology has been you know, enabling us to do this to such a large extent. So that's the first point in saying that privacy is effectively illegal. The second point is that there exists this doctrine in the Supreme Court prudence, the law of privacy of the Fourth Amendment. This doctrine is called the third party doctrine. And what it says is that when you share information with a third party, all this sharing that you're doing all day long, as soon as you share that information, that information is no longer covered by the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. That means if the government wants to get that information, there is no requirement that it go to the judge and present probable cause and particularized suspicion, you know, the affidavit and all the stuff. None of that applies. No probable cause, no particularized suspicion. Sometimes, you know, the information is protected by legislation, but it is no longer protected by the Fourth Amendment, okay? And so I, I think that legislation is an inadequate piece of protection for something so fundamental as your ability to protect your privacy via, you know, property or contract or other things. And, what, and, and this is the thing, this is how it gets complex, right? Um, but you know, you could say, okay, a fundamental value like privacy should not be subject to the whim of legislation. Then we could talk about why it is uh, later. Again, so now here I am, it's complex. But so think about those two things. All the sharing you do all day long, plus this third party doctrine means that today, privacy, real privacy, real protection for privacy is gone. Privacy is effectively illegal. You can make whatever contract with Facebook you want, but nonetheless, there will not be a warrant requirement. The government need not present probable cause and particularized suspicion to be able to compel Facebook to turn over information about you to the government. And that's true of your bank, and that's true of the cell phone. It's, it's cell phone data that's at issue in this particular case. That's that's the first thing to think about. The other thing, and you know, briefly just consider this, this is a big deal. Privacy is a value. Yeah, many people today, they choose to share information about themselves indiscriminately all over social media, but 
if you think about it, I think that you'll agree with me. You know, it, to some extent, it's a personal choice, but there have been studies to sh- that show, for example, that if you work in a workplace that gives you a private office versus one of these open plan places where you have no privacy, that you are more productive. For example, coding, computer coding is way more efficient, faster, accurate in a workplace where they are given private offices versus open plan. Relationships, right? Important relationships in your life. If you share everything indiscriminately with everybody, what do you have to offer kind of uniquely to those people who are really important to you? And that is one of the things that in our close relationships are, you know, is, is important that there are certain things that you share only with those people who are closest to you and are tremendous values to you. So it is a big deal that privacy is illegal today. Now, why is this particular case the opportunity to legalize privacy? It's because I contend that legislative solutions, so-called solutions to this problem, could be undone at any time. So suppose tomorrow that Congress decided to pass a law saying that with respect to the cell phone data in Carpenter, with respect to any of this third-party data, that the government must provide you know, probable cause, particularized suspicion, the equivalent of the warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment. Suppose that was done in legislation. That can be undone depending on what the particular rules are. Do they have to have just a bare majority? Do they have to have the 60 votes to undo particular types of legislation? It can be repealed way too easily. So if, you know, this is an important value, this is something that our framers, the founders, you know, the framers of our Constitution originally put under the Fourth Amendment, I do not think, in a, you know, a legislative Band-Aid is something that, you know, we feel that we can count on that our privacy is really protected. It's just not adequate. As soon as the political tides turn, as soon as everybody forgets about the Snowden revelations, then we're back to square one. And, you know, a lot of people, they just think, oh, well, you know, I don't really care about privacy anyway. I have nothing to hide. It's just not adequate. We need to put this information back under the protection of the Fourth Amendment. The protection of the Fourth Amendment is a lot more solid than anything that legislation can provide. So why this particular case then? Because this is a case that, because of its facts, gives the court the opportunity to eliminate that third-party doctrine that I told you that was making privacy illegal. So it could either eliminate it, it could do that. I don't think it will. Another option that it has before it would be to drastically scale back this doctrine in a principled way. And I will suggest the way that it could do that because obviously, yeah, my pie in the sky is that they eliminate this doctrine entirely. And I'm going to explain how I think that they could do that, but I don't expect them to do that. Why? Because Nobody, like I said, nobody shares my context of how privacy should be handled in the law today. They don't share that. But nonetheless, I think my context and my arguments could be used to inform a scaling back of this doctrine that 
might achieve a rough equivalent of what I would like to see. So I'm going to explain that to you. Um, what is this case about? Let me tell you what this case about is about. And I'm working from the statement of the case as presented by the petitioners, you know, Carpenter in the Carpenter versus United States case. Statement of the case from their brief, it says, this case concerns governmental acquisition of personal location records known as cell site location information to identify petitioner Timothy Carpenter's whereabouts over more than four months. The records, which are logged and retained by cellular service providers whenever people carry modern cell phones, make it possible to reconstruct in detail everywhere an individual has traveled over hours, days, weeks, or months. And then the statement of the case goes on to give you a whole bunch of detail about the technology and how much more fine-grained the information about your location is getting. So, you know, there's a particular cell site, and then there's kind of like a pie graph around it, and they can tell you, you know, where in the pie the person is standing. And at first, maybe they had only like four pieces of pie, but now they've got six, and, you know, it goes on, right? Um, that kind of information isn't necessarily relevant here. What is relevant in terms of the case is to say that the government acquired this information from the cell phone provider in this case without a warrant. So no probable cause, no particularized suspicion. And it should, if the Fourth Amendment applies, right? If the Fourth Amendment applies, if you know the obtaining of this information is deemed to be a search, right? Then there should have been a warrant. That's what the Fourth Amendment says, that whenever you have a search, if the government does a search of persons, houses, papers, effects, then it should present a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. In this case, no warrant was presented. And what the government is arguing is that because of this third-party doctrine, because Carpenter shared this information with his cell phone provider, then the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement doesn't apply and that everything's peachy keen, fine and dandy, and they can use the information against Carpenter. So that's how this, you know, how this case becomes one in which the court could do something important. So, so far, so good, people? Kind of telling you, you know, how this case is important. And, you know, so then the question is, what is it that I think should be done to the third-party doctrine? Right. How is it that I should say that, you know, the third party doctrine is, um, you know, supposed to be scaled back or maybe the third party doctrine doesn't apply to this particular case? You know, what sort of argument do I want to make? That's what I have to still flesh out for you in the chat room. We've got Redmond MTB saying it seems strange to me to say that privacy is illegal impossible, not a right, unprotected, make legal sense, but illegal seems they're outright making it illegal. Here's the thing. What they are saying is that if you share information with a third party and attempt to keep that information private through some sort of a contract, that contract is given no legal effect in essence. 
um, that it doesn't even matter. It's, so it's like maybe non-legal. You want to say it's non-legal perhaps. But I also say today, for example, that selling insurance is illegal because of Obamacare. There is no real health insurance anymore. I should have said health insurance. So legalized health insurance is one of the things that I would call for too. Can you actually make it legal to sell insurance? You cannot make a contract with Facebook, for example, that says, okay, don't turn my information over to the government unless they present a warrant. That's not even allowed. And then Josh in the chat room asks, why is this different from doctors and lawyers? Why aren't those third parties the same? So with respect to doctors, I don't know how much it still applies with the so-called HIPAA laws, but there used to be, of course, a physician-patient privilege. They talk about privileges in the law, and privileges are still these discrete areas of life that are strictly protected. Um, you know, so the physician-patient privilege, but I, like I said, I think it's sort of been eradicated under HIPAA laws. The information you share with your doctor isn't private anymore at all. The government can just grab it willy-nilly, as far as I know. Uh, some doctors are cool, and they don't necessarily put every single thing into a government-accessible record, bless their hearts. But, yeah, I don't think you have any real privacy in the physician-patient realm anymore, thanks to government. The... Attorney-client privilege is still there, and there's like a priest-penitent privilege and a husband-wife privilege, and I think there's some other privileges as well. So these are these historical privileges where they say, look, these relationships between people are so important that we're going to treat them as sacrosanct, that the information that's shared within the context of those relationships cannot be accessed, and maybe not at all. Forget warrants. You can't even get them. Uh, so, yeah, what, you know, why is it that, for example, you'd say, okay, my arrangement that I have with my bank or my phone company or anything else, why is that per the government worthy of less protection? I'm sharing sometimes very personal information in these contexts. And, you know, you could think, for example, among family members or husbands and wives, right, that the communication between husbands and wives is often done through technology and that means it passes through the third party and then what suddenly that stuff is gone because it's shared the privilege is re revoked that seems ridiculous right because what does technology do technology allows loved ones to stay connected with each other in certain ways and you you know you think you're going to strip that value so do do I maybe need to handle this privilege issue in here? I don't know if I need to answer that or not within the context of an 800-word op-ed. It's certainly a question that might arise for people. So I'll I'll think on it. Thanks for asking the the question, Josh. Okay, so again, where we are is I'm saying privacy is today, you know, today is effectively illegal because of, you know, you're sharing the information all the time. This third-party doctrine says, hey, the government can grab it. No warrant requirement. Uh, I think it's a, a big deal. I think that legislative solutions are inadequate. And so here we've got this case. We've got this Carpenter case that gives you this set of facts with the third-party doctrine at issue. 
And then the question is, what is it that I think that should be done with respect to the third party doctrine? And what's my argument for that? First, I'll tell you what I'm not going to argue. And I don't know if I'm necessarily going to lay all of this out in the op-ed, but maybe in order to contrast my approach to the the approaches that are out there, in the various briefs that you see being put before the court and arguments that people are making, some people are saying, yes, there is a reasonable expectation of privacy in the data that you share with your cell phone provider. And this is kind of the, you know, the argument that I see as far as I can tell by looking at the outline of the argument that they've got in the brief, the the petitioner's brief, Carpenter's brief in this case before the court is going along those lines. And in fact, what they've done in their brief is they have conceded that if it's just short-term cell phone data, short-term location data gathered from the cell phone provider, then maybe that would be okay. Go ahead and get that without a warrant, but it's the long-term that makes it unreasonable in some way. So they definitely seem to be in this realm of saying, okay, is it a reasonable expectation of privacy or is it not? And to me, this, and you know, it's a can of worms, maybe I'm opening here, but this reasonable expectation of privacy test, I've talked about it at length in one of my articles, is very pragmatic. It's a, it's a pragmatist doctrine. And that means what it relies upon is, in effect, satisfying demands of various parties, right? So there's the government's demand for information about you in order to prosecute crimes. And then there's your demand, your little demand for privacy, and the court will weigh this and they'll say, okay, well, you know, what's reasonable and don't we want, you know, the, you know, of course the government would also agree that there has to be some constraints on government. So you just kind of balance the various competing demands and then suddenly you say something is reasonable versus not. And I'm not going to argue here. Like I said, first of all, I think that, the doctrine shouldn't apply at all in this case, right? Um, but also, I think that entire test, reasonable expectation of privacy test, for determining whether there is a search, it, it kind of needs to go away. One of the things to explore here, and again, I don't know how much in the weeds I want to get about the, you know, get about this in an 800-word op-ed. I might skip over some of this detail entirely, but there has been a trend in Supreme Court cases away from the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And Justice Scalia was integral in this. There were two cases in particular where, where you know Scalia was making strides. One was called Kilo, and it's not the Kilo eminent domain case. It was the Kilo case in which there was a, uh, you know, the government trained a heat-seeking device onto someone's home and was observing that certain parts of the roof were giving off more heat than others. And then they figured out that inside the house, the, um, the guy was growing weed or something, you know, and he had the heat lamps to grow weed, and then that's how they discovered it. But they used this heat-seeking device without a warrant, 
And so then the question was, was there a search? And Scalia said there was. And he talked about the Fourth Amendment, persons, houses, papers, and effects, the, you know, the concrete things that the Fourth Amendment lists you know, in its text as being protected by the warrant requirement, you know, that you need a warrant to search persons, houses, papers, and effects. And what does this sound like if you talk about persons, houses, papers, and effects? It sounds very physical. It sounds very kind of property-oriented. It's definitely pushing more back in the direction of the traditional thoughts about the Fourth Amendment that a search occurred when there was some sort of physical invasion of a space and stuff. Um, so it's, you know, it, it um, to the extent that you go back to what is a person, house, paper, and effect, you're getting away from this more fluid, reasonable expectation of privacy test, this pragmatic balancing test. And you're looking more at these concrete things that are protected by the constitution. I, I think that was a great development. The other case, that Scalia wrote the opinion for in which they, you know, did a similar thing was U.S. versus Jones. And this was in spring of 2012. And this is where I first came up with my solution to this third party doctrine thing. Um, in United States versus Jones, the government put a GPS device onto Jones's vehicle and then, of course, tracked where the vehicle was and stuff. And they did it in a way that there needed to be a warrant. Oh, I think it was, uh, they had a warrant to do it, but then the validity of the warrant expired or something. So they, they did it somewhere outside the scope of the warrant that they had. So the question was, did they need a warrant in order to do it in the first place? Because the warrant that they had was defective. It didn't cover what they had actually done to Jones's car. And what did Scalia do? Scalia says, yeah, here's your car. It's an effect. Persons, houses, papers, effects. It is this piece of property that you own. And here's the government trespassing on it in effect, you know, putting the GPS device on it. So this is something that Scalia started, this trend of focusing back on persons, houses, papers, and effects and away from this reasonable expectation of privacy standard. And my hope is, you know, Scalia, rest in peace. It's, and part of the reason I was sad about it was, wow, he was doing this great thing in privacy, was bringing it back to a more physical property focused conception of privacy. What I'm hoping is that Gorsuch will be open to hearing this sort of framework, that this will be appealing to him as well, that he'll go back and look at some of Scalia, Scalia's opinions on this and perhaps even think about it in a more principled way if that's if that's possible you know you don't want to you don't want to be so concrete persons houses papers effects because especially today we want to talk about how i can use my property and contract rights to protect my privacy when i have a contractual relationship with facebook um that's something we would like to to start thinking about and if you focus only on concrete language in the constitution you could get tripped up about that. So that's a very long excursion to say why I won't argue from the standpoint of the reasonable expectation of privacy test, um, because I think it's an invalid test. And I think in any event, there are good arguments to be made that the court itself has been moving away 
from that test, thanks in huge part to Justice Scalia. Rest in peace. Um, he's originalist, but he did some good stuff here. So that's my thought on that. The other thing that I would not argue then, of course, is this long-term surveillance versus short-term surveillance. That's really comes under the umbrella of the reasonable expectation of privacy test. That somehow, you know, the long-term you have a reasonable expectation of privacy and that the short-term you don't, that just seems kind of nonsensical to me. Uh, The other thing I won't argue is, oh, because now this information is digital that that's why we suddenly need to scale back the third-party doctrine, that it was okay when the information wasn't digital back in the 70s when your bank records were, you know, not, like, for instance, you didn't online access your bank or, you know, the digital cell phone data like we have now when it was the old-fashioned landline with the pen register. I don't think the digitization should be where you draw the line either. The other place that I wouldn't try to draw the line and say, okay, you know, when does this third-party doctrine apply? When does it not? There's this argument that's in the Institute for Justice brief that has to do with when a particular application or, you know, an area of application of third-party doctrine invites the government to do sort of dragnet surveillance. Dragnet surveillance versus not, I'm not going to draw the line there. Again, what I think you need to do is either, like I said, eliminate this doctrine entirely or scale it back in a very principled way where you can draw a bright line. And I have a proposal for where exactly you can draw that bright line. And it doesn't have to do with inviting dragnet in certain areas or whether it's digital versus non-digital or not. The place that I'm going to draw the line that I propose that we would draw the line is a criminal context versus a non-criminal context, a criminal context versus a non-criminal context. And I'm going to go ahead and let you ponder that for a couple seconds, and I'm going to give you a musical interlude that's going to allow me to drink a little water, and I'll be back and I'll continue the next step of the argument. Okay, everyone, I am back. And again, what you're listening to is my best attempt to recommend what should be done in the Carpenter versus United States case, which is the cell phone location data privacy case that's coming up before the court. They haven't yet said exactly when they're going to have the oral argument, but it's going to be quite soon. They are actually, as far as I know, hearing argument today and hearing some tomorrow as well, but I don't know exactly when they're going to hear this case sometime soon. And what I'm asking you guys to do is, if you've been listening to it from the beginning, tell me whether this argument that I'm making is making sense to you, or am I taking for granted some sort of context that I have privately in my own mind that makes it seem obvious to me, but it's going to you know, need to be explained more to somebody else. So, 
where are we so far? I've talked about why I think privacy is illegal. We share all day. There's this doctrine in Supreme Court jurisprudence that says that once you share, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply anymore. And I'm saying that legislative solutions to this problem are not enough. What we need to do is we need to get this information to be covered by the Fourth Amendment again. And the way to do that is what to either eliminate this doctrine that's doing it or at least scale it back in a principled way. And how do we want to scale it back? What's the principle by which I think we should do it? What's my argument for it? That's where we are now. And I'm saying that the line that we need to draw is criminal versus non-criminal context. And this is what I mean. If you are familiar with the history of this third-party doctrine, you know that it was brought into the context of you know, what we call normal business records in the 1970s, that there were two cases in, you know, that are well-known and cited all the time where this, this information was brought in. And it was the Smith versus Maryland case and Miller versus United States. Smith versus Maryland uh, handled the telephone records, so-called pen register. In fact, I've, I'm right over here at Smith versus Maryland on fine law telephone company in that case at the request of the police installed at its central offices a pen register. This was the term for the device at the time. What did the pen register do? It recorded the numbers dialed from the telephone at petitioner's home. Prior to his, the petitioner's robbery trial, he moved to suppress, quote, all fruits derived from, end quote, the pen register. Maryland trial court denied the motion holding that the warrantless installation of the pen register did not violate the Fourth Amendment. And what was the holding in that case? That the use of the pen register was not a search. And why is it? Because no legitimate expectation of privacy was invaded. Why? Because you, you know, the petitioner was sharing the information, the number that they dialed with the telephone company. So that's Smith versus Maryland. And then there was a similar holding in Miller versus United States having to do with bank records. It happens to be the case that all sorts of transaction information that you have with your bank is now routinely turned over to the government per regulation. So there doesn't even have to be any kind of court order. Forget a warrant. Why? goes back, like I said, to the 1970s, this Miller versus United States. This is not covered by the Fourth Amendment. All the government has to do is pass a law, and it gets your information because you share that information with the bank. Now, the thing that happened in the 1970s, and Smith was the first case, is for the first time, this so-called third-party doctrine this doctrine that says when you share the information with the third party, it's no longer covered by the Fourth Amendment. For the first time, this was applied in a non-criminal context. The Supreme Court case that immediately preceded this one is one called United States versus White. And this was a case decided in 1971 you know, how these cases go on for years and years. The respondent in that case had been convicted in 1966 of narcotics violations 
following a trial where they had admitted evidence of certain incriminating statements that were overheard by a warrantless electronic eavesdropping device. They had a transmitter and there was an informer, you know, who consented to wear it, etc. So the immediately preceding case that went from White to Smith, in Smith, of course, the particular you know, a party that they got the information from was not a government informant. It was not in a criminal context, right? When you and I sign up for telephone service, it's a standard normal business transaction. We're doing it in the course of conducting our lives. We're not doing it as part of a criminal enterprise. In the United States versus white, the communication that was taking place, the communication whose substance was shared with the government later. It was with somebody who was probably a co-conspirator in a criminal enterprise. It was a government informant. It was somebody who was making friends with somebody in this criminal context. So you could think of, you remember watching um, The Sopranos and there's Tony Soprano in the basement, you know, trying not to be heard. And he's talking with one of his, guys, you know, part of his, his mob. And, you know, they're plotting whatever their criminal scheme is of the moment. And they're sharing details. And of course, part of their agreement is, oh, we're going to keep this quiet. We're not going to snitch and everything else. But it's a criminal context. It's a criminal context. And the Smith context, Smith versus Maryland, even though the guy himself was a, was a criminal, the sharing of information with the phone company did not occur in the context of a predominantly criminal scheme, right? It's, it was just a standard telephone service contract. It wasn't an arrangement between two criminal co-conspirators, which is what you've got going on in United States versus white. So I don't know about you, but right, this, this third party doctrine for decades up to this point of white, you know, a few decades, it wasn't around that long, but for a few decades, this doctrine was applied only in this type of criminal context where you've got the government, uh, you know, informant, right? So it's a criminal context. And then suddenly they transport this doctrine over into Smith versus Maryland, where it's just a standard telephone contract with the telephone company, no criminal enterprise, the, the particular telephone user happens to end up being a criminal, but the sharing of information was just part of a standard telephone contract, telephone service contract. Court transports the doctrine over there with no explanation. And this doctrine had arisen, right? It was first formulated in the context of criminal enterprise, government informants, that classic type of Tony Soprano case. So don't you think if the court is going to take this doctrine that arose in a criminal context and then bring it over to a non-criminal context where it's just you and me living our lives, sharing information with these third parties in order for them to help us live our lives better, don't you think that there would be some sort of explanation required? Why is it that it's not any more legitimate for us to expect privacy in a non-criminal context than for these other guys to be in this criminal context. So that's where I'm suggesting we draw the bright line. But I have another P 
piece of the puzzle to tell you why I think this is exactly the place where the line should be drawn. And this is where I go back and I draw upon common law and I draw upon my understanding of privacy as properly protected via our rights to property and contract. And it's this, this is, this is kind of where the, the clincher is in terms of, I mean, you could, you could stop there. You could say, okay, look, if the Supreme Court is going to bring a doctrine that arose in the criminal context and bring it over to the normal everyday life context, they should explain why they think they're entitled to do this. There should be some sort of fanfare. And actually, just to give you a bit of detail that I think is too much for, uh, for an op-ed length piece. In Smith, the court actually said something like, well, you know, the government cannot just take away your legitimate expectation of privacy by passing a regulation. And I've talked about this on the show before. Some of you may have heard me talk about this. Um, Sometimes the government has made arguments like this. They'll say, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in your barber shop. You know, you have a barber shop. And suppose you think that you want to give some privacy to patrons of your barber shop because they would like to not be seen by everybody walking by when they're having their hair cut, especially, and I use this example, men with toupees. Um, they have to take the toupee off and then cut the hair and then put it back on or something. They don't want to be seen. They want to have these private booths and stuff. And the government would say, no, you've got no reasonable expectation of privacy, even there, you know, where you've got this whole reasoning as to why you expect it. And it seems reasonable. I mean, that people would want privacy in this scenario. Nope. It, it, it's not legitimate. Why? Because the government passed a regulation that the health inspector or whoever it is, the state health inspector can come through and walk through at any time. And so of course they can do this without, a warrant, no probable cause, no particular suspicion. They can just walk right through anywhere in your barbershop whenever the hours are open for patrons and stuff, you know, however they work it out. And in Smith, they say, no, look, you know, the government can't just by fiat tell you, you know, by the way, from now on, you should expect Big Brother to be watching you all the time. But to me, the ironic thing is that the court itself in Smith versus Maryland said, oh, well, we're taking this third-party doctrine that had been in the criminal context that said, hey, if you're a criminal guy, don't expect to be able to share with your cohorts information and keep it private and stuff. It's, it's all up for grabs. The, the court took that and said, okay, we're going to bring it over to just normal people, not criminals, you and me, living our lives, using phone service, using banks. You know, that's what they had at the time. And the court, in effect, just declared it by fiat. And they said, you don't anymore have a legitimate expectation of privacy here. And they didn't give you a justification as to why they are entitled to bring it from one context to the other. They just said, you shared it, and that's it. So where's the extra piece of the puzzle? Let me give you a little bit more argument as to why I think they needed to provide that argument. Um, you could tell me, you know, do you think it's it's pretty obvious that if they're taking a doctrine from the criminal context to the non-criminal context, do they need to provide an explanation for that? To me, it seems obvious that they should anyway. But like I said, my 
understanding of that is informed by my overall thoughts about how privacy should be protected legally via property and contract. And let me go back to the the common law of this, okay? In common law, there is a doctrine called illegal contract. Illegal contract. And what it says, there is a contract whose primary purpose is to achieve a criminal objective. So, for example, you make a contract with some guy, like a you know a hitman or or whatever, or you know today it could be drugs and stuff. Although I think drugs should be legal, so that you know there's a whole bunch of cases that would never happen, uh, but for the drug laws, right? You know this this white was a narcotics violation. Um, you know, but it could be a contract to rob a bank or embezzle or whatever. You know, some sort of contract that has an overall illegal, a primary legal, illegal purpose. Any arrangement that Tony Soprano is making with some guy in his basement would qualify, right? It's an illegal contract. The purpose, the overall purpose of the contract that they're trying to achieve is illegal. What the doctrine says, what the illegal contract doctrine says is that that entire contract would be unenforceable. There would be no provision of that contract that would be enforceable in a court of law because the primary purpose of that contract is illegal. So this is why, of course, drug dealers, if they're trying to enforce their contracts with people who are buying drugs from them or whatever, they have to use violence and you know they're not going to go to court and say, oh, you didn't pay me for the pound of Coke or whatever it was that you bought. They can't. They cannot enforce the contracts in a court of law. Why? Because those contracts are illegal. And so let's go back now to the third-party doctrine. The third-party doctrine arose in this context of criminal enterprise. Tony Soprano sharing information with one of his cohorts, and they're plotting to do something illegal And part of their arrangement, like I said, part of the side agreements that they have is that neither of them is going to tell anybody about what they're up to. It's secret, right? They're going to keep everything private. That's part part of the deal. And what the doctrine of illegal contract would say is that none of that's enforceable. So if the court had thought of privacy as being protected by contract, they would have not needed a third-party doctrine. They would have said, oh, yeah, you shared this information in the context of an illegal contract, and that illegal contract is unenforceable. And so, therefore, any agreement that you guys had, implicit, explicit, whatever, to not share that information, none of that is enforceable. So, in effect, what I'm saying is, at least if you're looking at this original context in which the third-party doctrine arose, there really wasn't a need for the third-party doctrine if you think about privacy this way, if you think about privacy as protected by contract. Now, what I recognize is because Brandeis and his partner Warren and then the series of cases that came after, you know, Pavisic and then the dissent in Olmstead and all the stuff that came after, um, all of them treat privacy as a distinct right. They don't tie it to contract and property that much. Yes, there has been a trend, thanks to Scalia and Supreme Court jurisprudence, to go back and start thinking about privacy in a more property-oriented way, at least with respect to the particular things of persons, houses, papers, effects. Yeah, it's there. But I don't necessarily expect 
somebody to just jump on my bandwagon and the court can't, you know, with, like with one ruling suddenly change the whole way that we conceive of the right to privacy in our, in our country. So what would I suggest? What I would suggest then is that you go back and look at the bringing of the doctrine, the third party doctrine from white, that criminal context to the Smith context. And I would say that you could draw a bright line there. You could reference the common law in talking about why an expectation of privacy is or isn't legitimate in the two different contexts, that you don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy in the white context, in the criminal context, because of this doctrine of illegal contract. And, and yeah, you could still reference the common law in talking about maybe reasonable expectation of privacy. So maybe I want to revise, right? I want to say, yeah, well, maybe I'll use this language and say that let's gloss reasonable expectation of privacy in a way that looks at the common law context. But what I'm telling you is that I think that there are ways that the Supreme Court could draw the line and say that insofar as you and I, non-criminals, you and I aren't Tony Soprano, as long as we are sharing information with a third party in a normal, everyday business context just to go about living our lives, that that information should not come under the third party doctrine. It should still be protected by the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. There should still be a requirement of probable cause and particularized suspicion. And the court did not do its work. It did not explain why it was justified in transporting this doctrine from that criminal context where it made sense. It made a lot of sense. Why? I think they all had kind of bouncing around implicitly in their mind this idea of illegal contract. Yeah, this guy thinks he can get this guy to keep it secret, but it's not justified. Why? Let's make that explicit. And let's say that if you think you can go ahead and take that doctrine and transport it over to the non-criminal context, that the onus of proof is on you as to why you should do it. An argument needs to be made. And if you go back and look at the opinion in Smith versus Maryland, there was no fanfare. There was no explanation as to why they can just like pick this thing up from the criminal context and just plop it down in the non-criminal context. So that in a nutshell is the argument that I have. And I'm trying to think Oh, if there's other things that I would want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the other thing that I want to bring up from, you know, sort of recent Supreme Court rulings is that there was a case and I'd have to go dig it up and I will, I'll dig it up and find it. The Supreme Court has observed recently that in terms of our cell phones, that especially if you've got a smartphone, that the cell phone today contains so much more private information about you than even your house, right? If somebody came and walked through and searched my house, they may not learn very much about me at all, not too much, but they would learn a lot more if they could get into, you know, computers and, and cell phones and stuff like that. And this is one of the reasons, of course, why a company like Apple, who has been you know, using encryption technology and stuff like that, why they're so valuable to us. Why? Because today 
it's this third party doctrine. If, if our stuff is encrypted and we aren't even effectively sharing with Apple, then Apple can't be made to turn over information that it doesn't have without a warrant, right? It's wonderful. So this is why, but you know, if, if I want to kind of bring that point in about the cell, you know, the, the, uh, the Supreme court observing that in our smartphones today is a lot more information than even in our homes. And so if we want to, in effect, honor the original intention uh, behind the Fourth Amendment, which is to protect this very personal information that was contained on our persons and our houses and our papers and effects, that cell phone data, even when shared with third parties, should, should come under that rubric. So that's my argument in a nutshell. And then my question for you is going to be, did I do a good job of explaining it? Did it seem understandable? I think probably it did with all the side arguments and explanations that I gave. And then the question is, am I going to be able to get it down into 800 words? But I'm going to look forward to hearing you know, from you about this. I'm going to look at the comments over in the chat room here, and I invite you to call in. I know somebody called in earlier. Maybe whatever it was that you wanted to say or ask, I answered. But if you want to call back in and, and tell me where you think it makes sense, where it doesn't make sense, if there's something that I need to explain more to make clear, I would be all ears to hear about that. I'm going to play music for a second, take some water, and I'll be right back. Okay, everyone, I am back. Rob apparently has taken on the formidable task of live tweeting what I've done here, which is awesome. Um, I'll probably go through those tweets, and if I need to, I could correct something or not. But thank you for doing that, Rob, and I'll probably just go through and retweet a whole bunch of that stuff and, and try to get it out there. Hopefully that means it made sense. Is search, is it a legal trespass? You know, un, the traditional understanding of the Fourth Amendment had a search without a warrant deemed to be a an illegal trespass, you know, a trespass in effect. And the remedy for it used to be, you know, a tort remedy in, in trespass. And so you wouldn't, for instance, exclude the evidence. What you would do is you'd provide for a tort lawsuit that the criminal could make. It's like, yeah, you're still going to be convicted but you can sue the police for invading your home without a warrant. It's, you know, kind of not very much consolation if you're sitting in jail, but I think that might be probably the better way to do it. So Tom Petty maybe died is what people are saying here in the chat room. Yeah, I'm fine about that. Um, let me see here. Let me see what else we've got going. Like I said, call in and, and let me know. Um, not doing an amicus brief. I had a brief correspondence with two, actually a more extended correspondence with one foundation and then a very brief correspondence with another foundation. Uh, the longer correspondence 
with the one, it looked like I was going to end up doing a brief with them. It looked very promising. And so I thought, okay, that's great. I'm going to do it with them. And then they backed out. And then I was going on vacation and I was in the lurch. And then I had a feeler with another great organization, but then the way that they were going with their brief wasn't quite what I want to do either. And they ended up not following up with that either. So no, I don't. And so what do I have now? I've got, I think, the ability to do an op-ed and try to make the argument there. And, you know, of course, I can hope that the smart clerks of the Supreme Court might come across my, because I have a law review article, by the way. I have a law review article in which I lay out this solution. The one piece that I don't lay out as clearly in my law review article is this last piece about going from white to Smith without any explanation as to why they're justified. I didn't make a whole lot of fanfare. I talk about the underlying issue as to why your expectation of privacy would be legitimate in a non-criminal context, but not legitimate in the criminal context. I talk about that in my article, but in in terms of, you know, really looking at Smith and saying, Hey, look what they did in Smith. They just transported this doctrine from the criminal context to the non-criminal context. And they didn't say why they thought they were entitled to do this. And I, I think it's a big deal. I think that the onus of proof and argument should be on a court that does that, you know, that makes such a big step. All before that, the doctrine was in the criminal context. And then suddenly, boom, it's in the business records context, as they call it. That's where I think you need to draw the line. You say, you know, we aren't criminals. We aren't criminals when we get a phone contract or go to the bank and try to have a banking account, a checking account or something. That's not criminal activity, not inherently. So um, the article, though, if you want to find it and share it around, it's from St. John's Law Review, published October 2015. It's called of third-party bathwater. You have to excuse the long title. Long titles with, you know, the long subtitle and everything is just law review article tradition. So what I called it was of third-party bathwater, how to throw out the third-party doctrine while preserving government's ability to use secret agents. And what do I argue in there? I say that you could use that doctrine of illegal contract, that common law doctrine that I explained to you, you could use it to cover all of the sorts of cases that first gave rise to the third-party doctrine. Government could still do all its criminal investigation and everything else, and yet all of the things that we do in our daily lives, sharing information with third parties in order to make our lives better and richer and easier, we'd still be able to do those. And again, it's not like the government can't get the information, right? It's not like it can't. It just has to provide a warrant. Imagine, you know, it's like, oh, we have to get a warrant now. This is so inconvenient and horrible. We're just asking that the government get a warrant if it's going to invade the space of a legitimate contract. If I have a legitimate contract with Facebook, if the government wants information, about me, it needs to present a warrant. It can't just say, hey, this lady's been criticizing Trump. Why don't we just see if we just get some information on her or something? This is the kind of thing that scares you in the 1984 sort of way. 
that's my deal. I've got a couple of people who are on the line. If you want to ask a question, make a comment, et cetera, make sure you press one. If you press one, then I'll know that you want to do more than, than just sit there and listen on the line. And I'm totally willing to, you know, take calls and have you pick apart my argument and see where there's holes in it or make it clear. Um, yeah. So get, so they're talking about Tom Petty still 66 is too young. Yeah, definitely. I want to be doing a lot more at that point. So that's, that's very sad. Um, as if they're like, you know, as you, you guys were all saying, as if there wasn't enough to be upset about today. So no, people are on the line, but they aren't necessarily wanting to talk. If you are on the line and for some reason I, I'm not getting the little signal and you're also in the chat room, go ahead and just say in the chat room, yeah, I'm on the line. I want to talk, but I, I've invited people and I've got two people sitting online, but I don't have the little question icon that lets me know you actually would want to talk. Um, in any event, yeah. So this is this is the the whole overall argument. Where do you say you say okay, privacy is illegal. That today we share all the time, and there's this third party doctrine that makes it that you know, every time you share, you have given up Fourth Amendment protection. Privacy is a tremendous value. We have to keep in mind the value of it, even though many people throw values away all the time. There is, you know, at least give you the examples of relationships and and productivity where privacy is a tremendous asset. Why this particular case? Because I think legislative solutions aren't enough that we actually need the Supreme Court to address this problem with the third party doctrine, at least scale it back in a principled way. And my proposal, again, is to scale it back to the context of criminal enterprise, that any sharing that is done within the context of a legitimate legal enterprise, standard contracts that all of us make every single day with social media, with Internet service providers, with cell phone companies, regular landline telephone companies, banks, parking lots, parking structures where you park your car. Um, I would still want to put doctors, right? Wouldn't it be nice if it was possible to have privacy in a, in a medical context? It's not anymore in our country. Our government has made privacy in a medical context illegal as well. Um, in all these places, if we are not criminals, we should be able to make contracts to keep things private. And those contracts should not be able to be invaded without a warrant based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion. That's where I would draw the line. I would scale it back. I would say everything, including Smith and Miller on up, would be invalid. I would overturn Smith. I'd say you don't have any reason to take this doctrine that was once fully in the criminal context and bring it over into the non-criminal context. The government cannot treat us all like criminals no justification for it and as i said you know to get sort of further understanding as to why it's not legitimate in the criminal context to expect privacy it's because any agreement that you have to keep things private in that context would not traditionally be enforceable under common law no criminal con- you know, contract no contract to achieve a criminal end was ever enforceable 
under common law. And I think that's what made this third-party doctrine so plausible when it first came about. So I would recognize that you know, privacy has its roots in property and contract. If you think about it, it, we use our property, we use our contracts to try to protect our privacy all day long to the extent that it's allowed. But today, government simply doesn't allow us to use our contract rights to protect our privacy, not the way that it should, not the way that it could. And it would be good to see us being able to do that again. And, and like I said, you know, we can cite Scalia's opinions in Jones and in Kilo going back toward an understanding of privacy that is tied to property, at least to particular types of property and things that are listed concretely in the Fourth Amendment. I don't think that's enough, but I think it's a direction. It's a hopeful direction. And what we would like to do is go back and say, okay, it's tied to property. It's tied to contract that the listing of persons, houses, papers, effects in the Fourth Amendment is an indication that this is what privacy is is based upon. And, you know, ideally, like I said, long-term pie in the sky, what I would like to see is that they put all legal protection for privacy back into that realm. So Josh in the chat room has this one phrasing of it. Criminal contracts of non-disclosure not enforceable, but lawful contracts of non-disclosure enforceable. Yes, that was exactly, you know, that that's the line that I would draw. And then the question is, how briefly am I going to be able to throw this into an op-ed and make it completely understandable? I think that working through it here, first of all, I, I'm assuming, you haven't told me, um, I'm assuming that all of you found this understandable. And now, see, now if I, you know, say that statement to you guys, right, because you've been listening to my whole podcast today, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, criminal contacts of non-disclosure, not enforceable, but lawful contracts of non-disclosure would be enforceable. That formulation, you understand in brief because you've listened to my whole thing. Um, so Josh is saying you can't do an amicus brief yourself. The deadline has long passed. And like I said, I ate up a lot of the time that I could work on an amicus brief and try to figure out how to get it before the court while I was waiting for this one foundation in particular to work with me because they, yeah, so there's no more time. And so the only thing that I can hope to do is maybe get an op-ed in front of some eyes, hopefully a clerk, <laughs> Or, I mean, who knows, you know, if a justice, I, I, I want to put this before New York Times and say, okay, here's a, here's a chance to legalize privacy, see if New York Times would publish such a thing. And if they did, then somebody, some interested eyes could be on it. For instance, in United States versus Jones, like I said, it's that case where the government put the GPS device on the bottom of the car, on Jones's car. And Scalia wrote the majority opinion and said, yeah, this is a search. It's an effect under persons, houses, papers, effects. So Justice Sotomayor, in that case, in 2012, she wrote a concurrence because this was a unanimous ruling by the Supreme Court. They all agreed. Scalia wrote the opinion, but unanimous ruling. And sometimes what the justices do is they'll write a concurring opinion and they'll say, well, I agree with you, but I have you know, some points to make about why my reasoning is a little bit different, et cetera. And 
Sotomayor, in her concurrence, suggested that the third-party doctrine be reconsidered. She was saying, hey, Justice Scalia, don't you see that some of what you're saying here conflicts with some of our other rulings in the third-party doctrine area? And I forget exactly what the train of argument as to why there was inconsistencies that she saw. It had to do with these weird like container cases that people put devices on containers and then you bought the containers and you were transporting things and something was illegal. And it was a very convoluted context, but she, at the time it made sense to me, I have to go back and recreate, but she said, Hey, you've got to reconsider the third party doctrine. I said, ah, so back in 2012, I already thought of my solution to this problem. I had a whole bunch going on and I didn't, couldn't write up, you know, the solution at that point. Of course, in 2013 is when Snowden's revelations came about and Snowden, you know, revealed how the government is engaging in mass surveillance in effect, no warrant, no probable cause, no particularized suspicion, you know, suspicion. They're just bulk collecting metadata from all of us through Verizon and all these other companies and that's when it became really compelling. So I'd already had this, you know, solution like I said back 2012 became more compelling 2013 started to write it up and this was actually the St. John's Law Review was the summer 2014 edition but it didn't get published until October 2015. Law reviews are kind of slow that way. But yes, this has been a long time in the in the making and as I said now, you know, after Snowden's revelations a number of the cases started moving up through the federal courts. And finally, this Carpenter one is getting before the Supreme Court this term. And it's a, it's a good opportunity. Um, oh, yeah, so Rob is going to maybe tweet Josh's tweet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice summation. I don't know that I would use exactly that formulation, Josh, in, in the op-ed. If I do, I'll give you credit, right? But... Um, but I don't know if I'm going to use exactly that formulation, but at a certain point, yes, I'm going to have to sum it up and say, okay, here's where I draw the line. Criminal contract contracts, including non-disclosure agreements are unenforceable, non-criminal contracts enforceable, including any non-disclosure agreements, not completely impenetrable, right? Again, the government can come and bring its warrant and do all that stuff, but it should not be able to just invade your contract with Facebook or, um, you know, your phone company or your bank or your doctor. It should not be able to invade it willy-nilly, just pass a law, and then, boom, they get all that information. They should have to present a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. You should be able to use your rights to property and contract to create this, what I would call a, a digital extension of of yourself and in other contexts i've gone further and i've I've argued you know this is a separate topic that i'm about to go into right now and i I wouldn't talk about it in the op-ed but this idea of encryption right apple the promise uh, of apple you know that they've been trying to deliver to us is that they give us this beautiful little device called an iphone and everything is encrypted to such an extent, end-to-end encryption, so to speak, user-to-user encryption, that even though I'm, you know, sort of transmitting little ones and zeros 
through Apple owned or operated or whatever servers, right? Um, even though I'm doing that, I'm not actually sharing any information with Apple. The only person that I end up sharing the information with is the intended recipient. Apple's trying to achieve that for you so that you can have out there in your online life, digital equivalent of a home, you know, like the home that you're in or your apartment or whatever, something to which you alone have the key. So that if the government wanted the information that is in there about you, it would have to come to you and present a warrant. Imagine that, right? Imagine you get to the stage where the information is accessible really only to you through some sort of password encryption or put the fingerprint or I think what the new iPhone has, it registers your face. It's got to be your face. I think that should be perfectly legal. Why can't, why can't we have the digital equivalent of a home to which you alone have the key and the government has to come to you with a warrant? A lot of people say, oh, well, the government needs the information and criminal enterprise and the blah, blah, blah. But you can't treat everybody like criminals, right? You can't say, okay, well, we're going to treat you as if there's some reason to think that you're a criminal, you're engaged in criminal enterprises and everything else. So um, I believe, yeah, I believe that all this encryption technology should be legal. I part with Ted Cruz, as great as I think he is on so many issues, I part with Ted Cruz on that. Carly Fiorina also thought that the government should mandate a backdoor that you shouldn't be able to have, like I said, the equivalent of a house to which you alone have a key. I, I say, yeah, there's, I mean, there's even so much more private information here in these devices than probably there ever was. I mean, maybe not, you know, again, go back to people who are really diligent and consistent diarists, you know, would write in diaries all the time. You know, is there more information about our thought process, our personal thought processes and stuff in these digital devices? Maybe, you know, we could think about that, but why shouldn't it be able to have the same level of protection as the things that were normally protected by the warrant requirement? Government has to come to you, present a warrant. Rob says, isn't all regulation based on the expectation of criminality? Not even that, right? I mean, um, not even because they wouldn't even say, you know, somebody who, for instance, lends money at a so-called usurious rate, you know, a high interest rate, that that person is necessarily a criminal, but, well, they're sort of taking advantage and... Um, you know, so I would I would say that some regulation is certainly done on the assumption that we're all potential criminals. You know, so for example, that um, you know, if somebody sells meat, right? You know, some they they raise cows and they sell steaks or whatever. Okay, uh, that that person is at any moment just waiting to get away with selling rancid meat and poisoning everybody <laughs> as opposed to let's have the assumption that everybody wants to have business success in the long term and get a reputation for creating a quality product and selling it out there and all this. <sighs> yeah. 
I mean, you know, again, yeah, I mean, the way we could think about it is that a lot of regulation is based on the assumption that you will not do your altruistic duty. That's what, you know, that's the regulation, some of the regulation. So, yeah, some of the regulation is out there based on an expectation that, you know, the only thing that's keeping us all from being criminals is that a law exists. You know, that if the, if the law wasn't there, then all of us would be horrible. This is the old debate, right, between Hobbes and Locke. I mean, not a direct debate, but you have to think at root, do you agree more with Hobbes about human nature or do you agree more with Locke? And Hobbes thought that in the state of nature, you know, in the, in the world without government, that life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Why? Because it was only government that was keeping people from deciding that it was in their own interest to hit their neighbor over the head and steal his cow. Um, everybody was just waiting to do that. And if government didn't exist, everybody would be doing that all the time. And Locke thought, hey, in a state of nature, when there isn't government, no, it wouldn't be the case that everybody would be out there doing all these horrible things. Um, and in fact, that government is, you know, it, it, it's potentially a value. It is good to have objective law and the ability to have the police go out there and, you know, objectively prosecute crimes and everything as opposed to vigilante justice and stuff. But a government is a value per lock only if its functions are strictly limited to that principle of individual rights. Whereas Hobbes would say, hey, we should accept potentially even totalitarian regimes because even that is better than life in the state of nature because in the state of nature, wow, it's just a war of all against all. And you might think you have an advantage, but even if you are super smart and super strong, you are relatively you know, equal with respect to your fellow human being. And sometime you got to sleep. And when you sleep, that guy's going to hit you over the head or whatever, you know, Kim Jong-un can't uh, survive forever. Somebody's going to get the idea that, you know, when he's sleeping or something, they can, you know, get, get rid of him. You can't use force forever. Um, but yeah, so Hobbes would say, Hey, you know, everybody's just waiting to, hit you over the head and steal your cow or all the time. And so therefore you should accept a totalitarian regime even because that would, um, you know, be preferable to life as solitary, poor, nasty, bruised and short. Uh, just Jean says, yeah, so let's make criminals out of as many people as possible. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd have to go back and look at, maybe I want to interview one of those people who wrote one of those books about how many laws it is that you routinely break every day it was like nine felonies a day or something that could be an interesting interview now that i'm doing the three days a week i wouldn't mind hearing about that original sin yeah we are i mean what hobbes thought is that we were determined to follow our self-interest and he had a very warped notion of what would actually be in your self-interest he didn't have this idea that human beings get their self-esteem through engaging in productive work, work that provides value, value that you can exchange on a market in order to get the things that you need to sustain your life, that your ability to do this translates into your feeling about your worth 
of, you know, being worthy of happiness, right? All of those connections that were made most explicitly, I think, under Ayn Rand's philosophy, those weren't made by Hobbes at all. Hobbes thought uh, we're determined, right? We don't have free will. We automatically will act in our self-interest. And moreover, we will automatically see it in our self-interest to, you know, like I said, hit the neighbor over the head and just steal his cow, all of this short-range theft and using force to get whatever short-term gain that we can. Locke had a different sort of recognition about what human nature was and human life was. And, um, you know, what you believe about human nature is going to, I think, dictate some of the answers. I'm actually out of time now. So I think all of you, if you want to continue the conversation with me, feel free, um, you know, message me and, and other things like that. You can um, send stuff through my blog as well. I've got contact through my blog. If there's some point that you thought I was unclear about today, would love to hear it. Otherwise, my goal is now to condense everything that I've told you today in a highly digestible form, and I'll send it out there. And when I do send it out there, whether it's this podcast, the op-ed, anything else, please share, 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 share. I'm counting on you guys to help me out with this. So thank you again for being here, for letting me just, you know, kind of work out the argument and stuff. I hope it was a value to you as well. And we'll talk on Wednesday again, 3 p.m. in Eastern time zone, 12 p.m. Pacific time. Talk to you then. Take care.